Did you know it's possible to have great privilege and yet find real problems with the very privilege that you have? We're going to see that to be the case with Abraham. It's kind of something like that when one has and you believe the promises of God, sometimes we can struggle with those very promises. We can discover that the believing part can involve some severe difficulties. Severe for us, anyway. It can be difficult for us. See, it's a high privilege to have promises, but to go on believing them is not always an easy thing for us to do. Sometimes God provides crutches for faith to walk on. You guys know what crutches are, right? Uh, I broke my leg when I was, I don't know, about five years old. And after they put this really long cast on my leg, they gave me these crutches to walk around on. And they were very, very, very helpful, but very uncomfortable. Sometimes God does that for us. He gives us these crutches. And this is the concern here in Genesis 15. And it, it packs some good news in here for God's people. Now we need to understand the context. God's already spoken to Abraham about this heir, this, this son, uh, his descendant that he was going to give to him. God's talked to him about his inheritance. But as often what happens, when time goes on, and you don't see the fulfillment of those promises, uh, your confidence can fade. Your assurance can fade. And that's exactly what's going on here, because the, the physical situation of, of him and his wife Sarah caused Abraham to question, whom would the heir be? And there was a lack of a legal covenant that was causing him some concern about actually receiving the inheritance that God promised. But the good news is, Abraham is about to receive some good news from God, which makes me think of us. How about you and me? Maybe you're like Abraham. Maybe you can relate to Abraham. You're struggling in faith. And if that's the case, you might feel like you need some crutches for your faith. Well, you need to listen and take heed and learn from this very important chapter. So let's look to God's Word together. Read God's Word from Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 1 says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, 
a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the, Ke- the, the, the Kenizzites, the Kedmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus ends chapter 15. So what's the point in all that? Well, there's some lessons we can learn from this. I heard a long time ago a man named Alec Moiter. He said, when you're reading your Old Testament, particularly the stories in your Old Testament, remember that those Old Testament narratives are a declaration by God of God. So God's speaking. He's talking of himself. He wants you to learn some things of himself because it's by God of God. So what can we learn? Well, here's my theme coming from Genesis 15, that God meets struggling faith with assurance and develops assurance through his covenant. So there's your two main points. If you're keeping notes today, I'll put the two main points in that that theme for you. So our first lesson that we can learn about God is that God meets struggling faith with assurance. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But notice um, how the chapter begins. Genesis 15 starts with these words, After these things. So it comes in a context. So we have to ask the question then, what things is God talking about? Well, that's the previous chapter, chapter 14. Now, I haven't preached chapter 14, but if you go back and read chapter 14, you'll see there that Abraham attacked four kings in their large armies because those four kings in their armies had, had attacked the city of Sodom and taken captive uh, a member of Abram's family. In fact, a nephew named Lot. And so Abram made a daring raid to rescue his family. And as a result of that, Abram had made some enemies. As you can imagine, those four kings would not be very happy with Abram. But the good news is, we have for the very first time in your Bible here, where we have this phrase introduced here, the word of Yahweh came. Now, I'm substituting your your English word for the Hebrew word there. 
Because probably your Bible in English has all capital letters L-O-R-D. That is the Hebrew word for God's name, Yahweh. So it's, it's the word of Yahweh comes for the very first time, at least in the English words there. And what does the word of Yahweh say? Well, praise God, what we have going on here is Yahweh is actually revealing himself. He's telling us some really good things that we need to know. So let's see what he reveals to Abram. Number one, we're going we're gonna to see God's revelation here in verse one. So God's struggling servant here needed some assurance. Now, how's he going to get that assurance? Is he going to get it by relying on himself? And is he going to give himself a pep talk here? And is, is he lacking in some self-esteem? Or what, what's going on? Does he need some psychoanalysis going on here? What does he really need? What he needs to know is he needs to know God. He needs to know God. And so God reveals himself and in the process brings some assurance to, to someone who's struggling a bit here. And what does God actually tell him? Number one, notice the first words out of Yahweh's mouth here is, is what? Fear not. Fear not. <laughs> uh, so the point I, that, that I think we can make here is that God is our peace. God is our peace. By the way, have you noticed how often, if you read your Bible, often God, when he comes to people, or an angel even comes to people, Often the first words out of the angel's mouth or God's mouth or the pre-incarnate Christ is fear not. Obviously, we as human beings have issue with this. If we see God continually telling us fear not. We have an issue with fear. We need to, we need to fear God. We need to have this reverential awe of God, but the, the circumstances and the people and the things around us should not bring us fear when we understand who God is, that God is our peace. And the second thing God says here is, He is a shield. He's a shield. The the idea there, God's saying, Abram, I am your protector. Don't don't look to yourself and your army and what's going on with all the other armies and people around you. Look to me, because I am your shield. So I ask my friends, are you shielded as Abram was? Is God your shield? A shield was something that a soldier would take with them. They would use it usually in their left arm as protection. Are you trusting in God like a shield to protect you? Now often men and women trust all kinds of other things. Uh, We might even trust our own government. We might trust ourselves or... Uh, the, the things in our resources, our investments, uh, it might be our own intellect, our own abilities. We might put some trust in our, our friends or our family or our own wealth or our ideas, our popularity. There's a number of things we, uh, we put, we tend to put our trust in. We, we treat it like a shield. But those things ultimately disappoint anybody who puts their trust in them. Just talk to people. You'll see that to be the case. So, my friends, if you want a real shield, if you want a real protector, then trust God. Trust God. Fortunately, eventually, Abraham, we see him here uh, doing that very thing. But uh, there are times in our life where we can be up and down, right? 
we're not consistent. Maybe at one moment we're trusting and another we're not. But, but uh, hopefully this will be a, a general direction of your life that you're, you're seeing God as your protector. God also revealed himself, number three here, as his prize. God is our prize. Notice there in verse 1 that God says, Abram, your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. Literally, God's saying, I am your reward. And because the letter R doesn't match the P's, I changed reward to prize. So hopefully it will help you remember all those three P's, the three P's there. He is your peace, your protector, and your prize. He's all three. And this is a good, a, a good, in fact, a great promise that God himself was to be Abram's reward. He is your reward. So I ask, do you seek for things? Do you think that your reward consists of what you can earn or what you do or what you know? If you think that, you're going to be certainly disappointed. <laughs> to have God as your reward, by the way, means several things. Number one, it means this, my friends, that you can share in all that God has. Think about that. What does God have? Well, Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. So uh, the entire universe is the Lord's. Okay? So you can share in all that God has when you claim God as your prize or your reward. And moreover, we learn in Scripture that He's going to share heaven and earth with us, if that is if you're a believer. See, the Bible says that we are God's children. You're not born into your, his family, by the way. You're adopted into his family. And Romans 8, verse 17 says that if we are children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Notice the phrase, co-heirs with Christ. Let me just elaborate on that for a moment because that's crucial. The Bible says you are a co-heir with Christ. Now, we need to you need to understand there's a great difference between an heir and a co-heir. They're not the same thing. See, if you're a if you're just a single heir, then you alone inherit everything. But if you are one of four heirs, then you receive one fourth or twenty-five percent of the inheritance. You don't get it all. If, however, you happen to be one of four co-heirs, then guess what? You inherit everything. You inherit all. Because co-heirs possess the inheritance together. All four get it. And this is, this is the point I want to make here. It's, it's the same for Christians. Because the Bible says in Romans 8, 17, you are co-heir with Christ. So all Christians are co-heirs with Christ. And, 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 and so all that God has becomes ours. All that Christ has becomes ours because you're a co-heir with Christ. So what Christ possesses, you possess. Does that make sense? You're possessing it jointly. And then you're going to enter in one day, you're going to receive this inheritance when you meet Jesus. And you'll be a co-heir with Jesus. So we need to understand what it means to have God as our reward. He is literally your prize. And, and all that He has, and 
what, what comes with him, you also inherit. Well, we, we could go on and on about all of that, but um, I, hope, uh, I hope that's encouraging to you, as it was to Abraham. See, God is our peace. He's our protector and our prize. God's revealing himself here to Abram to, to give him this insurance and this encouragement that he needed. But let's look at Abram's reasoning here after God's revealed himself in, in verse 1. Uh, we see in verse 2, Abram says, O oh Lord God. Now you may not get the full significance of that in the English there. But, but even in his, his fear and maybe even despair, Abram's not disrespectful of God here. Notice he begins his address by saying, well, in Hebrew it's more like, O Lord Yahweh. Notice the first part, Lord. Abram is recognizing in the Hebrew here that, that God is Adonai. Now, Adonai is just a, a word that it conveys the idea that God is my master. So Abram's recognizing who is his master, who who should he be yielding to here? And then connected to the to that word Adonai, he connects the word, well, in my translation it says God, all capital letters. That should give you a clue that it is God's name, Yahweh. He's the self-existent one, the one who's always been. He's the beginning and the end, and the Alpha and the Omega, and the Eternal One. And so... Somehow Abram's recognized who God is, and he's showing great respect here to God as he does this, but he's, he's recognizing his position before his master, that he's a slave before this one who is sovereign over all. So we need to understand he's not being disrespectful as he comes to God, but he does have some questions. He doesn't fully understand what's happening because God has promised him an heir. God's promised him an inheritance, and he's like, okay, there's a lot of time that's going past here. What's going on? I don't understand. So he's respectfully asking, what, what's going on? Because it appears that the the heir of my house is going to be Eliezer. You haven't given me offspring like you promised. I don't have a son. What's going on here? And so that's his reasoning. God's very gracious responds look how look at god's reply to abram here verse 4 so again we see those precious words the word of yahweh came to him came to him and he says this man shall not be your heir eliezer not he's not going to be your heir you're going to have a son from your from you you and your wife are going to have a son so God responds to Abram by renewing the promise he's already made. So you could call this the second Abrahamic covenant or the a renewal, a repeat of the Abrahamic covenant that you saw in Genesis chapter 12. And so God's saying the, the, the promise of a posterity here is going to be innumerable. Now how does God show this to Abraham? Well, he makes the promise graphic and vivid. So he, he has Abram come out of his tent and look up at the night sky. Have you ever done that, by the way? You go outside the city where, there's, where you don't have light pollution, 
If you've never done that, I highly recommend it. Get outside the light pollution of the city and actually look at the, the Milky Way galaxy above your head and, and the millions and millions of stars. It is truly breathtaking if you, if you can do that. And that's exactly what God does to Abram here. So Abram's looking up at all these stars. He's getting this visual experience of, of heaven here, which was a symbol of the great increase that will occur in Abram's family. That's comforting. Because at this point, he, he doesn't have a son. And they're getting old. Uh, doesn't seem to be much hope at this point. But the promise, however, simply increases the paradox here. Think about it. Indeed, the promise is repeated, and it's reinforced by this visual act of looking at all these stars. Yet all it is is just a promise at this point. The promised blessings haven't actually materialized for him yet. And Abram is, he's elderly and getting older, he's still childless. And it almost seems impossible. So how is he going to respond? Well, look at Abram's response in verse 6. This is one of your mo- the most important verses in your Bible because it is repeated a lot. Look, it just says, he believed Yahweh. He believed Yahweh. Now, there's, there's only five words in the Hebrew language here in verse 6, and it really contains a wealth of meaning for us. This verse is actually quoted in your New Testament three times. You'll find it in... Galatians chapter 3, you'll find it quoted in Romans chapter 4, and quoted in James chapter 2. Really, really important. There's three key words I just want to point out to you. Uh, They are the words believe, the word counted, and the word righteous. Let me just highlight these three for you real quick. And before I highlight those, I I, I need to mention, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time now. When did Abram become a Christian? When was... When, when was he converted? When did he he believe in God? Well, I believe that happened earlier, although uh, some think it happens at this point. And, and I, I think it happened earlier, like in, in Genesis chapter 12, based on my understanding of Hebrews chapter 11. So what's going on here? Because it says the word believed. Well, Abram believed God. And what that literally means is that Abram said, Amen, God. Amen. Truly, truly, I believe. The idea of the word believe means he's putting his whole weight on God. He's, it means to lean your whole weight upon someone or something. And that's what he's doing with God here. All of his weight, all of his trust and his belief is going on God. So he leaned wholly on the promise of God and the God of the promise here. Now we need to understand, we're not saved by making promises to God. But it's important for you to believe the promises of God. Really important. Because that's how you're saved. You're you're trusting in the God of those promises. Really, when when you're trusting in a promise, it's, it's your recognition of how much you actually believe and trust the one who made those promises, right? Now, what was Abram's greatest need here? Well, his greatest need is the same need that you and I have, and it's, it's this word righteousness. 
the greatest need of people of our day because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans also tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one is righteous. Not one has met God's standard of perfection. So it's not enough for you to be religious. It's not enough for you to do good works. See, God demands that we have perfect righteousness or He's not going to let us enter into His heaven. Well, how is that going to happen? Because none of us have perfect righteousness. So how did Abram receive this righteousness? And here's why you see this this verse quoted in Romans, Galatians, and James. This is so important because... He believed Yahweh. And then Yahweh imputed Christ's righteousness to him. And the point in Romans 4 is, you can be saved the same way Abraham was saved. And it's not through works. It's not through being religious. You can't do anything to be saved. It's by faith in the one who's done it for you. See, the word impute means to put to one's account. Now, how did that happen? See, how did you, how did you get righteousness put on your account? It's like going to the bank and thinking you have an insurmountable debt, and then you go to the bank and, and the, and the bank tells you, well, actually, you don't have a debt. You're, you're incredibly wealthy. Really? I am? Wouldn't that be good news? That would be really good news. The bank tells you, well, actually, you're now a trillionaire, a multi-trillionaire, because you, you, you have insurmountable wealth. You're no longer in debt. And that's, that's exactly what happens to any believer in Christ. Because what has been put onto your account is Christ's righteousness. And then when Christ was on the cross, our sins were put on Jesus' account. So then now Jesus' bank account is in in huge debt, if you will. Think of it that way. So he suffered in your place. He takes the punishment that belongs to us. And so when you trust in him, his righteousness is put on your account, and then you stand righteous, you stand forgiven before a holy God. You see how that works? And that's why this verse is, is used over and over in your New Testament. It's so important. Abraham believe God. He puts his whole weight on the the only one who could help him. His greatest need was a lack of righteousness, so he needed the righteousness of Christ. So praise God, that's how all believers are made debt-free and get a huge, huge, glorious account in place of that. But there's a second lesson we can learn from this account. I know I'm going fast here. I'm just getting some highlights for us here as we go through this. But we see here that God develops this assurance through His covenants. God is a a God who loves to make covenants, a God who keeps His covenants. In fact, some have said your Old Testament is where God makes covenants, and the New Testament is where you see God keeping His covenants. That's a good way of thinking of the Bible. But we need to ask the question, what is a covenant? Because... uh, that might be confusing. A covenant is just a promise. It's a promise. In this case, a promise that's made by God to Abram. Now, for many of us, promise might be a better word for you to think of than the word covenant. 
uh, for some people, covenant might suggest uh, you trying to make a bargain with, with someone or a group of people. God's covenants, by the way, are established apart from the bargaining capacities of people. You're not going to see Abram doing any bargaining with God here. This, this, is, this is all God doing this. Okay, No bargaining whatsoever. So, so, so don't think of bargaining. Think of God making a promise to Abram. God's making a covenant. Now, what are the characteristics of God's promises? Now, what you're going to see here is three parts. Three parts. Number one, the promise or the covenant is unilateral. Uni means one. There's only one party making the promise here. They're established by God alone. The second second thing you're going to notice here is it's permanent. It's permanent or, or eternal. And the third thing we'll, we'll see here is they're based on grace. See, no individual deserves God's promises. No, no, no person deserves God making any promises whatsoever. And so these three points are actually seen in the life of Abram here. So let me just uh, highlight for you, as, as we think about this covenant that God makes with Abram, uh, we're going to see some details. We're going to see how God confirms the, the land covenant with Abram. And then what does that mean for us, okay? And then we'll wrap it up. So let's look at some details of the land covenants. Now, God had made a, a greater covenant in Genesis 12. If you're not familiar with Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, go back and read those, please. Not now, but later. And you'll see the, the greater Abrahamic covenant. But included in the Abrahamic covenant included land. God said, I'm going to give you land. So let's think about this the details of the land covenant. Because uh, if you look at verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, this this deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, dreadful dark darkness fell upon him. And then the then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. So what's, what's Yahweh talking about here? Let's think about this. Well, i got some questions that I want to answer for you. Well, number one here, how would the land be given? God tells Abraham and gives him assurance by telling him this. How is this land going to be received? Well, the means by which Abram's descendants would come to possess the land it would not be a pleasant ordeal. Uh, it's going to be a terrible thing, in other words. And God actually foretold Abram his followers here, his descendants would be enslaved... Notice, God says, for 400 years. And it's going to be in a foreign land, which, uh, of course, if you know your Bible, you know that foreign land's going to be Egypt. Eventually, it's going to, they're going to go down to Egypt. And so this was the historical outworking of Abram's vision of these birds. These birds, notice, they're descending on slain animals. I've tried to I've, I've tried to do some reading and trying to understand what's going on here. It is possible that these birds directly uh, referenced Abram's descendants and, and the the abuse they received at the hands of the Egyptians. It's interesting the the Egyptian falcon god by the name of Horus was a meat eating bird. So possibly there's this this connection here to the Egyptians through that means. And so God's telling him, well, how are you going to get the land? 
Well, it's, it's going to be down the road. <laughs> it's not coming to you immediately. And it's going to be a terrible ordeal. And you're going to be under some attack, under some abuse here. But at least, at least it's going to happen. There's another question that God answers in verse 15. To whom would the land be given? Well, look what verse 15 says. As for you, God speaking to Abram, he says, You shall go to your fathers in peace. You should be buried in a good old age. I can imagine Abram was a little shocked by what God said there. Abram had to accept the fact that he would not possess the land. That may maybe not what he wanted to hear. Remember, God had originally said, Go from the Ur of the Chaldeans and then go to this place, to, to Canaan. This is the land I'm going to give to you. This is the promised land. Maybe, maybe Abram's thinking when I get there, God's going to give me this land. But as you know, when he got there, there were already Canaanites living there. And God's now telling him, well, actually, you're not going to actually get it yet, but your descendants will. So he had to accept that fact. But this was some good news, even though he's not receiving it yet. It, it, I'm sure it must have encouraged him to know this especially in light of of his long life that still lay ahead of him. So, to whom would the land be given? Not to Abram, but to his descendants. And then some people are confused by this third question here, when and why the 400 years mentioned here. This is confusing to some people. By the way, there's no contradictions in the Bible. We just don't understand what's going on sometimes. But if you look at verse 13, it mentions 400 years. And then if you look at verse 16, it mentions that there's uh, that they're going to come back to the promised land in the fourth generation. So what's going on here? It's an apparent contradiction. Well, that's because uh, you need to understand a generation could actually mean a lifetime. And during the patriarchal period, of course, people were living longer than they do today. So uh, that could be 100 years. Patriarchs lived over 100 years old. So the round number of 400 in these four generations here are, are basically coming together into one. And then we also know, based on Exodus chapter 12, that they were actually in Egypt for 430 years, technically. So it's, it's describing this long period that ended with the Exodus, when when Israel comes out of Exodus after being enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, to be exact. So the 400 years was an important mark by by, by which you can kind of kind of put your mark in the sand, so to speak, a mark of history. But but a far greater significance here is why why. What's the significance, the reason for these four centuries? Why did God wait four centuries, 430 years? Well, God says so in verse 16, because he says it was because of the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites. It was not yet complete. Well, that tells you something about God, that God was revealing to Abram that he is patient, Incredibly patient, beyond human calculation. It shows that God is long-suffering. And we see God 
the long suffering on the part of God when, when even when the Apostle Paul uh, mentions this idea in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Yeah. <laughs> that shows that God is long suffering, God is patience. Long-suffering is God's method. We see Him going on through history. But my friends, there ultimately would come a day when the Amorites had reached the point of no return. And, And that is when we see, when you read the book of Exodus, God unleashes a flood of Israelites coming out of Egypt. They eventually make it to the Promised Land. And I love the way that one commentator by the name of Derek Kidner put this. He says that, that, that Joshua's invasion of the promised land was an act of justice, not aggression. It was an act of justice because I hear unbelievers like to, they love to attack God and they talk about the genocide that, that takes place in the promised land as if that's not fair. Really? God gave them 430 years to repent. And they refused to repent. And so they got what they deserved. And so we need to understand that God is long-suffering. God is very patient. But at some point, the patience runs out. But we do see God's purpose here was ultimately to strengthen Abram's faith, to give him encouragement. And so these details of this land covenant are encouraging. They are assuring. But then God himself is the one who confirms this land covenant in verses 17 through 21. Let's think about the confirmation. And I'll give you some pictures on the screen here. I hope they're they're helpful as you, you look at these. But you need to remember something about an oath. Remember something about a pledge. An oath is confirmed in different ways, depending on what part of the world you're in, what culture you're in. For example, have any of you ever gone to court, and the uh, the people at the court there, they they tell you, they now uh, you must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And sometimes they might even say, "So help me God." Right? Sometimes you might even have to hold up your right hand. Sometimes you might even have to put your hand on the Bible when you make that oath, right? Why do they do that? Because you're making an oath. It's showing the significance, how serious a matter of the truth is. In other countries, like Muslim countries, an oath is confirmed by reference to the beard of the prophet. That's a really significant, serious thing. And so there's various ways you can confirm a covenant, but in Abram's day, you might have a little little uh, cultural barrier going on here. You might not understand what's going on in this picture up here on the screen, but an oath in Abram's day was confirmed by a ceremony where animals were cut in two, and they would cut along the backbone, and then they would place the animals in two rows. And the rows would be facing each other, and then there would be a space between the two halves of animals. And then what typically would happen is 
the two parties who were making an oath together, they were making this covenant together, would walk between the dead animals. They would go into that space, and then they would stand there, and then they would speak to each other the promises that they were making to each other. And so the oath was especially sacred because of the shed blood. These innocent animals had died, if you will, in their place. And so any violation of that oath and that promise was considered great dishonor. So this was the ceremony that God enacted with Abram. (laughs) And in the case of Abram, however, there's one very important feature that's different from how typically would happen during Abram's day is that Abram's not standing with God between the animals. If you look at your scripture, you'll notice Abram's not there. God alone is the one who passed between the pieces. Because look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. You'll only see God because it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, if you're reading your Bible correctly, And observing it correctly, you'll notice God's not mentioned there. God has put a a picture of something that represents Him. In fact, two things are represented there, right? So let me explain that. But, um, But we need to understand, Abram was not allowed to participate here. It's not because probably not probably not because he didn't want to, but God's not allowing him to to participate. And so when God came to confirm his covenant with Abraham, he confirmed it by himself. Abraham says nothing. Abraham does nothing in this case. Now that's significant because if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand the next verse I'm going to read. Because look at this. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 says this. That when God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, when when God says this in Hebrews 6, He's talking about this right here, this event in, in Genesis 15. And so what you have represented here with the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch is God. The presence of God in this ceremony was signified by two symbols that were intended to tell Abram something of God's very nature. Now you're going to if you if you read through your Old Testament, you're going to see these things keep popping up. God loves to display himself through through light and fire and and smoke. He does that a lot, particularly to Israel. And notice the first thing in verse 7 is, Abram saw this smoking fire pot. This is just a little furnace. And that's what's passing between the, the pieces of the animals. Now in our day, we've, we've, we've almost lost the significance of a smoking fire pot or a furnace. But it was well known in ancient times, and uh, if you want to know what maybe a bigger idea of what this looks like, you can, if you go out to the farm, uh, my son Daniel bought a, a, uh, a, little, a little furnace or a forge, 
where he likes to he, he likes to play blacksmith. And uh, blacksmiths love to to get the fire really hot so they can work with metal. And uh, they they were doing this sort of thing uh, differently, but uh, similarly back in Abram's day. But you need to understand the significance is often lost here because we the the art of of this very thing is is kind of dying off in some ways. But it was well known in ancient times. What you have here is a small furnace. The purpose of the small furnace was to purify metal. As the ore was put into the little furnace and the ore was heated within that furnace, what would happen is dross would rise to the surface as the metal would melt and become liquid state. So dross would separate from the metal and it always rises to the top. It was the refiner's job to skim off that dross until the metal appeared. And, and how they would know that is they would look into the, the molten metal and they could see the reflection. But when the dross was there, they couldn't see the reflection. And so it's interesting, the, the prophet Malachi uses this illustration of a furnace or a smoking fire pot here and Here's what uh, the prophet Malachi says in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, I'll put it on the screen here for you. He says that God will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then Yahweh will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. That's interesting. Because the prophet Malachi meant that God refines his people. Sometimes he makes life a little hot for us, if you will and uh, might might give us some suffering or affliction or trials or whatever. Why does God do that? Because God wants to purify you. He wanted to purify His people. He wanted to be able to see Himself in His people. The problem with dross is you can't see yourself. And at times the trial may be painful. You might actually resent the fire that God brings your way. But you need to understand that God is a good God and always good. And so it's good for you what God gives to you because God is purifying you. So God is representing himself here with this smoking fire pot or this furnace. But notice there's a second symbol that was seen by Abram. Again, may I remind you, Abram isn't walking between the animals here with God. God is there and he's put these two symbols there representing himself. And the second one, as you can see on the screen, is a torch. Where did the picture go? There we go. So you got a torch and the what's supposed to be a smoking fire pot or a furnace between the, the dead animals. So that too, by the way, the, the torch is supposed to be a symbol of God's presence. God often describes himself as light or fire in Scripture. For example... In 1 John 1, verse 5, it says that God is light. In Him, there is no darkness at all. And this is how God appears to Abram. And we see God moving between the the sacrifices, these dead animals. And what is God doing here? God is guaranteeing His promise. He's saying, Abram, I'm making a covenant. A covenant between you and me. I'm going to keep my covenant. And this is how serious this was, by the way. Because God's, as, as He's represented by the furnace and the, the torch, God's saying, 
what has happened to the animals will happen to me if I do not keep my word. If I break my covenant, if I break my promises, I too will be slaughtered and I will die. And I will be under the curse. That's how significant this was. Now somebody asked me this week, why, why these particular animals? Uh, I don't fully understand why God picked those animals. But, but what I can say is, if you look at cross-references in your Bible, these are the kinds of animals that God said were acceptable sacrifices for, uh, if you read the book of Exodus and Leviticus. God said there were, there were unclean animals and clean animals. Some were not meant for, for animal sacrifices, some were. So these animals were acceptable sacrifices to God. Uh, so why those? Those are the ones that God picks, okay? Don't fully understand why. But uh, as we look at this land covenant that God made with Abram, again, understand it's unconditional. It's unconditional. It's not based on Israel's obedience. The covenant depends entirely on God's word. Now, what does that mean for Israel here? Because Abram, who becomes Abraham, is the father of Israel. So, so, so what's the connection to Israel, and what does that mean for them? Well, it means that Israel has a future in the Middle East. They have a future in the Middle East. See, one of the things, if you read all the way through your Bible, hopefully one of the things you learn is that during the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, is that Israel is going to possess a lot more land than they currently possess. So, if you think Israel has all their land at this point, they don't, okay? Uh, if you look at a map like this one here, this is the best map I could find. You'll see the, the blue part there is, is Israel currently. Uh, the red part, I believe, is Jordan. But all that green space is the part that Israel does not currently possess, but is the land that God had promised, as far as I understand, anyway. And so, my friends, you'll see in that, that the, the map on the screen here is that the countries of Jordan, Syria, and uh, much of Iraq belongs to Israel. Now, if you, know, if you have a Muslim friend... Um, be careful if you talk about that, because they don't like to hear that. <laughs> In fact, they really hate that. Because uh, they, they would love to see that blue part cease to exist and just push them right into the ocean, right? To totally wipe them off the map. But God says, that belongs to Israel. That is Israel's promised land and has, has been since the Abrahamic covenant. And so, my friends, God is not done with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel just because Israel didn't keep all of the promise. Because remember, it's not based on Israel, is it? It wasn't based on Abram. Who's it based on? God. God's the only one represented between the animals, right? Abram's not there, so it's not based on Israel's obedience. So there is no way the church can come and replace the Abrahamic covenant here. It can't. Uh, so this is one of the reasons I, I am a premillennialist, and part of that uh, means that uh, there is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth, and a part of that is Christ is going to fulfill his promises to Israel. They have a glorious future. 
Why can I say that? Because God made a covenant, and God keeps His word. He keeps His promises. He's going to fulfill it. You say, okay, that's great. That's, that's for Israel. What does that mean for me? <laughs> How does this affect me as a Christian today in 2019? Well, has God changed? No. <laughs> now, here's where this relates to you, because God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So just as God made a covenant with Abraham, and he kept it through history, so he's made a covenant with all who are Christians. And so you and I come now under the new covenant, which Jesus says comes on as a result of his blood, his death, this new covenant he set in my blood. And so he will keep his covenant through the years of our lives on this earth, and he's going to continue to keep it through all eternity. And so the, the question is, are we going to believe this? Are we going to trust? Well, may God enable us to truly believe. Well, we can praise God for his new covenant in Christ's blood. Why? Because human beings are unfaithful. I'm unfaithful. You're unfaithful. We have nothing to commend ourselves to God. Had God not unilaterally established His covenant, nobody would believe. Had He not made His covenant eternal or permanent, he, all would fall away, everybody would be lost. If His covenant had not been entirely by His grace alone, none would have heard those promises, because nobody deserves them anyway. But what did God do, my friends? God established His covenant. He confirmed his covenant, and by the way, not with the blood of animals. Hebrews tells us it's not by the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so when Christ was on that cross, my friends, notice the connection with darkness here, because there was three hours of darkness when Christ was on that cross. He's hanging on the cross in that darkness. God moved in the darkness and confirmed his covenant with His people. And so because of Christ's death, we shall never perish. And the Bible says, no man will be able to snatch you out of His hand. No one, nothing, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's good news. There's a covenant. And you have a God who keeps His covenant. When He makes promises, you know He's going to be faithful to those promises. The same God that Abram had is the same God you and I have. So may God enable us to trust and believe in this God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious truth that you enable us in our struggling faith by giving us assurance. You give us covenants and promises. You even give us yourself the greatest prize and reward of all. Thank you for that. May we believe it. May we wholly lean on you and your promises as Abram did here. Give us this faith because we can't do this. Uh, it's, just, it's just too hard. We can't do it. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself. So may we understand how you have revealed yourself, who you are, particularly that you are peace. You are our protector. And you are a prize. May we believe these things and may they enable us to live a life of victory, encouraged, 
enabled to fulfill your purposes. Would you give us your grace? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.